Well, let's go ahead and pray and get started this morning. God, we are thankful for a rainy day and to be here together to open your word once again, uh, to learn about sin, to learn about grace, and ultimately to um, <clears throat> gaze upon the person of Jesus and understand how uh, he would have us think about him and ourselves in the world. God, we long to be holy, humble, and wise people, and we pray that um, you would help us take one small step towards that today as we seek to learn about, uh, continue learning about these things. So we ask for your grace and your help in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last time uh, we finished up discussing effectual call and regeneration, which I said is two sides really of the same coin. Uh, we said that this effectual calling and quickening of the heart is something that is um, necessary. It is what accounts for why people who are dead in sin and haters of light and hostile to God's law can come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's difficult to understand, really it's possible to understand, uh, how people who are dead in sin and hate God ever have end up finding themselves with desires for godliness. How does that happen uh, the answer that we've given is this regeneration and this effectual calling that it is a quickening of the heart, a changing of the heart that enables someone to respond and is not just enable to them to respond and enabling grace, but a grace that um, guarantees that they will respond, which is what makes it effectual. Uh, we, we even said that we might call it something like directed regeneration. Uh, but after finishing it up, we started looking at potential objections to the doctrine, and we looked at one alternative theological suggestion um, for how people could move towards God uh, that might undercut the reality or the necessity of an effectual call. In other words, this is another suggestion for how people who, to all appearances, are dead in sin might nevertheless move towards God. Does anyone know, remember what that was called? Two words, the doctrine of what? You remember? Prevenient grace. Yes, that is exactly right. I have this very quickly. I'm going to rehearse it very, very quickly. Um, uh, because uh, of prevenient grace, the story goes, an effectual calling is not necessary for people to repent and believe the gospel. They can do so of their own choice. Okay, and we talked about, we looked at four different passages that seem to suggest this. John 1, 9 Roman, uh, John uh, 12, 32, Romans 2, 4, and Titus 2, 11. Prevenient grace uh, on the dominant view is necessary, not sufficient. It is enabling, it is transformative, and it is universal. So to, to put it in not-so-academic language, uh, prevenient grace restores someone kind of, but not like to be the point of being a Christian. It affects everyone's heart, but it restores them only partially. It's like a some kind of partial regeneration, if you will, with this being the upshot, is that there is no one since the fall who actually experiences total inability or depravity. All such descriptions of inability describe man without God's grace, but because everyone has received God's grace, despite, despite still being sinful, Everyone has been restored to a point where they at least have the ability to choose to repent and believe the gospel without a further work of God. That's the idea of prevenient grace. There's been a, a grace that has affected everyone 
okay? And so to take them from a point of utter inability, which they are uh, an experience apart from grace, and restore to them a measure uh, of grace such that while they are still bent towards sin, they are not so bent towards sin that they cannot, after that, take uh, uh, respond without any kind of special call. Yeah, do you have a question? Yeah, great question. So the question is: It is a universal thing, or is it given at particular times, on the in a particular ways, particular degrees? The answer is that on the in the majority view, the vast majority view, Jacob Arminius, John Wesley, that it is a universal thing that people experience. There is a minority view that says that provenient grace only comes with preaching of the gospel, which is a very funny version of it, it seems to me. But the majority view is that every there is no one who is actually totally depraved. Okay, and that is why it is sometimes. Our, our brothers and sisters holding this doctrine are sometimes jabbed as saying, well, you're the, the hypothetical depravity, like hypothetical total depravity. There's no one who's actually totally depraved. Everyone's hypothetically depraved because everyone has experienced this grace. Okay? And that is the difference, I will say, between uh, semi-Pelagianism and Arminianism, provenient grace. Semi-Pelagianism traditionally is we're just not bad enough that we... We're just not sinful enough that we can't take the first step towards God. We just don't need a, a, a special grace at all. It's condemned at the Council of Orange, certainly condemned throughout the Protestant Reformation. Arminianism has a very strong doctrine of depravity and said, no, we cannot respond to God without an initial movement of grace towards God, but that everyone gets this, everyone gets this grace, and it isn't sufficient to accomplish a particular end. It just enables people to be able to do this. Okay? That would be a pretty serious undercutting doctrine to the doctrine of kind of an effectual calling, the John 6.44 draw, effectual drawing. And so uh, we're, we are here, we, we kind of now have arrived where we were last time. We were talking about problems with prevenient grace. And you'll recall that I argued that the prevenient grace, the first problem is that it presents a New Testament category that doesn't exist. Someone who is neither a light hater, unable to please God, uh, dead, who is dead in sin, nor someone who is alive to God, united to Christ with sins forgiven. It presents a princess bride version of depravity, mostly dead. Okay, there's someone who is kind of in the middle. But Jesus says, whoever is not against me, uh, is you're not with me, you're against me. Those who gather with me, uh, you're going to gather with me, you're going to scatter. John 3.19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Luke 6, 44, 45, the evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. The good man brings good out of the good stored up in his heart. Um, Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with Christ. So it just doesn't see, the, the New Testament doesn't seem to suggest that there's someone who's not, who is in neither of the two categories, alive to Christ, totally dead in sin. It's like, well, it just doesn't seem to be the case. Are they, do they have a renewed heart? Well, kind of. Well, are they dead in sin? Well, kind of, but not really. Well, are they, do they have it? Well, it, it's just this middle category that is, uh, Scripture doesn't have a category for. The second thing, though, if God's application of grace to our hearts is insufficient to save us, which is prevenient grace, 
Okay, it's not a sufficient grace, it's an enabling grace. Necessary but not sufficient. It is difficult to understand how our exercise of faith does not provide us a legitimate grounds to boast before man and God. Now, I told you at the beginning of this series that I was going to, you know, cock my shotgun and blow out of the sky some very bad reformed formulations of some of these arguments. And that's what we've got to do first do here. This claim right here is very different than the often touted Calvinist and reformed claim that in Arminian theology, faith is just another work because fallen creatures are the ones doing it. Um, and, and, uh, uh, and therefore, uh, and therefore faith ends up becoming a work in, a, in and of itself. Um, but here's the problem with that. Faith and works in the New Testament as technical terms are always contrasted. They're always contrasted. Faith can't be considered a work just because we can come up with verbal forms in the English language that make it sound like it is. Trusting. Here's how it kind of goes. Like trusting, believing, repenting. It's like, oh, those are doings. And doings are efforts. And efforts are works. So faith is a work. Woo! Someone got ahead of themselves. Someone got ahead of themselves. The New Testament defines its own terms. Okay? You can't, in, you can't, in, you can't infer yourself out of the standard idiom of the New Testament. Works is one thing. Faith is another thing. A good thing generically, like having faith, is not the same thing in the New Testament law gospel idiom as a good work, which is understood as something like an active obedience that is deserving of praise or reward in light of which one might boast. I've behaved righteously. I've acted righteously. I have something to stand on here. It would be unjust to criticize or condemn me because of what I've done. Something like that is a work. That is specifically contrasted with faith. So just because you can put a verbal form on something, believing, which is the same word, belief and faith is the same word in Greek. Believing, oh, that's a doing. Oh, that's an efforting. Oh, that must be a working. Someone has gotten, uh, someone has gotten off the track there. Having said all that, there is a proper reformulation, which I think this is it, that articulates what this argument is trying to get at. Let me just say, this, this malformed version of the argument, there are a lot of very, very well-known, and I'm not going to tell you who they are. There are very, a lot of very well-known, well-respected Reformed theologians and pastors who will give you the version of the argument that I just said is, is getting ahead of themselves. They'll say, well, because faith is not, is not a work, just because you can put it in a verbal form, like believing. Um, here, here is how we should think about it. The objection here is that Faith on the Arminian scheme of things, despite not being a work, nevertheless seems like a virtuous, God-pleasing phenomena that people produce and then gets some credit in the salvation process besides mere instrumental value. It isn't clear why God couldn't say this, Well done, you obeyed me and pleased me in repenting and having faith in my Son instead of working for your righteousness. And because of this, I declare you not guilty. Okay? So let me read that again. It isn't clear why God couldn't say, Well done! You obeyed me and pleased me in repenting and having faith in my Son instead of working for your righteousness. See how that preserves the faith works distinction? And because of this, because you have obeyed me and pleased me, I justify you. Okay? 
In that scheme, it seems like faith plays more than a mere instrumental role. Okay? Um, in other words, the careful reform person here is saying this. I agree that, uh, uh, that, that faith is not something over which one can boast. It's not a work. But the only way to account for the meaningful difference between faith and a work in which someone can boast is God bringing about the faith or belief like we saw last time in, in regeneration. Okay? A Reformed theologian should step in and say, yeah, work, the works and faith are two different things. But the, way to, the only way to maintain the distinction between the two and make them not both meritorious is if God is the one who provides both. Otherwise, you are going to end up with something that you could boast in yourself. D.A. Carson puts it well. He says, if five prisoners were to accept a pardon and five were to reject it, those who accept are distinguishable from those who reject the offer solely on the basis of their own decision to accept the pardon. The only thing that separates them from those who are carted off to prison is the wisdom of their own choice. And that becomes not a work, but nevertheless a legitimate boast. By contrast, in the Calvinistic scheme, the sole determining factor is God's elective grace. And of course, you would have to ask the question, and I believe our brother Steve uh, brought this up. Uh, maybe he said it after the Sunday school. Um, you have to ask, why else would one person respond to the external call of the gospel to repent and believe, and the person right next to them, and we could stipulate that they were raised in the same home and their twins and all the other stuff. Why, would that, why did they not respond? There has to be some reason. There has to be some account. And if it isn't, if the account doesn't lie in God extending to them an effectual call in a generation, you don't have a lot of good options that aren't going to leave you with some kind of boasting. Why? Well, because they were a little bit smarter than the person next to them. They just realized that, uh, that this is how the world works. And, uh, you know, in fact, they were, they were better educated than this person. They ended up, uh, they, they learned more. Um, they, uh, you know, that they had studied harder. No, in fact, it was the, it, they had a stronger moral compass. That's why. They had a strong person. A had a stronger moral compass than person B, and that's why they made this particular decision. No, it was this. They were just less cognitively defective. Everyone has everyone has experienced, um, you know, effects of the sin on the of sin on the way they reason and things. But person A was just more cognitively defective than this other person. What what is it? Something has to account for it. If the answer isn't in God, if it's in us, it's got to be something. And that's it's very difficult to see how that doesn't become a boast, despite not being in the Arminian scheme a work. Someone, any questions about that distinction? Any questions about the argument as it is malformed, or the brunt of the argument as it is? I would suggest properly formulated. So let me ask this then, because I know, does everyone understand the distinction between the, the argument as it is formed poorly as, as it is formed properly? Does everyone understand the reason that's important or no? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I'll let, I'll let him speak for the majority. Okay. If you do have questions and you kind of want to, you know, you're raising your hand in the quiet of your heart or something and you don't want to say anything out loud, come up. I'll, I'll be happy to discuss it with you. Uh, afterward. 
Okay, we looked at two objections, both very difficult, I think, for the proponent of provenient grace to overcome, these two. But um, most importantly, what we have not looked at is the passages. We notice we had never come back to looking at the scriptural support for this, right? So, so far we've just said, well, this isn't, I mean, the whole concept doesn't work for these reasons. But what about the very passages that are supposed to get it off the ground? We're supposed to be a people of the book, people of the cloth. And that is exactly what we're about to do. We're about to turn to the four passages. Don't you want to see? You want to see this? Don't you, don't you want to see the, the what to make of these four passages that are so heavily used to justify that there is this kind of enabling, but nevertheless not sufficient grace. So let's look at the first one, and this is the one that John Wesley used by far the most of his major four, John 1.9. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture or flip on your phone or whatever it is to John 1.9. And if you remember, uh, we we get there's this beautiful light imagery uh, really throughout John's writings. And um, John is talking about... Um, uh, John the Baptist, okay, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. And then we get to John 9, and John 1, 9 says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Okay, that is the major proof text for prevenient grace. The idea that is because of Christ, everyone has had a little bit of light shined on their heart, understood to mean something like enlightened. In fact, some of your translations may even have enlightened, which I think carries with it in the English language something like, I was taught something, which is a little bit misleading. But the idea is just photizo in the Greek, just to shine light on. It's just to enlighten in the sense of to light up. It's a verb form of just light, to light. Okay, The light here clearly refers to Jesus, what does it mean that the true light gives light? That's what's up for debate, right? What does it mean that the true light gives light? And then he gives light to everyone. Um, a good practice in Scripture is as much as you can to let Scripture itself interpret Scripture. John certainly uses light in a couple of different ways. Uh, we see two of them right here. Uh, but it does seem that John himself, just two chapters later says a very, very similar thing with the, with the light language. Turn over with me to John chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Oh, let's get started in 17 for the sake of time. We have the famous John three sixteen, But then he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Here, listen to this. This is the judgment given that the light has come into the world. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Okay? The idea seems to be that to give light doesn't mean enlightening, like a professor enlightens you in some kind of English uh, sense of the word, but this lightning is a revealing it is a clarifying. It is an uncovering. And when things are uncovered, what is the judgment? What is the judgment? The judgment is 
that people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And people who do wicked things don't come to the light because they don't want to be exposed. People who do works uh, that are good, uh, do work, things that are true, they come to the light so it can be clearly seen. Again, we have the exposed language. We have the clearly seen language. This is, has to do with the light that has been shown in, as it has come into the world. The light has come into the world. So when we back up to John 1.9, we read very extremely similar language. Extremely similar language. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Gives light to, not like I am enlightening, teaching, and certainly not that I'm morally transforming people, which is just not there at all. But in John's own words that he came into the world so that there could be a true reckoning and so that things could be seen for what they are. We could even jump out of John uh, to a to similar passage in Paul, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, where the same word is used. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. There will be an eschatological public version of what happened when, at Christ's first coming, at his second coming, where there will be a public reckoning of things that were in the dark. And what was, you know, uh, uh, whispered in the darkness will be proclaimed on the rooftops. And so um, you have another example in Ephesians 3. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone, same word, photizo, the word, to enlighten for everyone what is the plan, the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Again, and it's the use of the word that is, I am clarifying, I am revealing, I am exposing, not that I am morally transforming anything. It doesn't have anything to do with that in this particular usage. Um, and then finally, so the, the, the well-known yeah, well words here also of Paul, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and call us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the, way the ages began, and which now has been manifested, has been revealed, through the appearing of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So this idea of bringing to light, to lighten, um, uh, what I'm suggesting in John and in general when that, when that word is used, it is used three times in the New Testament, uh, twice in Hebrews and once in, um, in, a, in, a, in the beginning of Ephesians, that your eyes of your heart would be enlightened, and then twice in Hebrews, um, those who have once been enlightened, Hebrews 6. The vast majority of case, the, the other cases uh, seems to be something about revealing and exposing and there's certain none of the cases does it seem to be a kind of any kind of moral quickening or transformation. Okay, it just doesn't seem there. You could also turn to First John one seven. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, it's a, it's another story. It's another picture there of living an exposed life because the person who is honest about his sin before God and man has his uh, his is purified is 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 uh, forgiven of his transgressions, but it also allows fellowship with other people as well. Okay. 
So the light imagery here, what I'm suggesting, the way John understands it here, the way he uses it similarly in 1 John 1.7, the way the word is used similarly other places, seems to suggest that what's talking about, what's being discussed here is a kind of bringing to light and exposing because the light has come into the world and rendered a judgment. And there will be a final version of that judgment at his second coming. Let's look at John 12.32, which is the second text that's supposed to uh, inform the prevenient grace uh, uh, position. And just the idea that there is prevenient grace. We'll just start at 31. Jesus is talking. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, first of all, we might say, are we talking here about a drawing or a calling, or are we talking about a transformative act? Are we talking about everyone's cell phone getting activated but never, or get, but never getting a phone call, or everyone getting a phone call? Hold on, because they're not... Well, I told you that in practice, regeneration and the calling are two uh, are, 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 are wed together, but conceptually they can be distinguished. Which one is this one talking about if this is supposed to be an argument for... Uh, uh, some kind of grace that affects the heart, that transforms it, even if someone has never heard the gospel. So what, is, is this an argument? In other words, it seems like a much better proof text, honestly, for a universal call of God or universalism or something like that. And I'm not saying that either one of those is a good understanding either, uh, than a text that supports some kind of special quickening of the heart. I just don't see that. He's going to draw all people to himself means he's going to quicken everyone's heart. Or does it mean he's going to call to himself? However, again, this comes on the heels of John 11, 45 and 52. How does John understand this kind of language himself? Turn back with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Whoops, I didn't actually have to turn anywhere as it turned out. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, starting in verse 45, uh, had did believe in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that, here it is, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51 he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into abroad the children of God who are uh, gather into I'm sorry, gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so when we read the I will draw all people to myself right here, and we read Caiaphas's um unwitting uh, prophecy, we have to ask, what is going on here? What it sounds like, it sure sounds like, as we're talking about that as a result of Christ's work, Christ will draw to himself all people without distinction. He will no longer be someone who only comes for, only does ministry, particularly among the Jews. The Jewish, he is the Jewish Messiah, but he will be from people every tribe, every tongue, Every nation he will call out of darkness. That is what's going to happen as a result of the person uh, uh, and work 
of Christ. And that seems to be the way he understands that categorically. And we see an example of it in, in 11. The, 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 the whole nation is contrasted with everyone else, but it's all kinds of people. That's the whole, that's the thing. It's all kinds of people, not for the nation only, but for also for together into the children, into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad, not just here in this local place, not just one ethnicity, every nation, tribe, and tongue that we see in Revelation chapter five. That's what it seems that Jesus is doing. He's drawing those people um, uh, in his death and resurrection, okay? The second two, if you thought that the first two efforts were, okay, it's, you know, maybe at least trying to, uh, to it might be, you might think, well, these were reaches. The, the next two, I think, to you will sound like very extreme reaches here. Very extreme reaches to try to justify a doctrine. Yes? Well, so so that's the ch- well, so that's the challenge with the that particular verse to support it because prevenient grace really is more of a everyone has been enabled to respond to a call. It's not really a doctrine about a call or drawing itself. That's why that's a strange text to use. That's why I pointed out it's like, well, is it, are we are you talking? Is this text supposed to be supporting a doctrine of a particular draw or a doctrine of a particular? That's the cell phone analogy. Is this a, are we talking about a doctrine of everyone's cell phone gets partially fixed or everyone gets a phone call? And this one, it seems to seem like a little bait and switch here. Here's an example of everyone's heart being partially fixed. Oh, wait, but it's talking about something else. Talk about a call. Which, which one is it? So, but the prevenient grace is supposed to be that people's hearts are restored and enabled regardless of what call they receive or if they uh, receive an external call at all. Does that answer the question? All right, Romans 2.4. Romans 2.4. Many of you have read this many times, and you're going, to be, you're going to wonder how on earth does this support provenient grace. Okay? So he's talking about hypocritical... Paul is talking about hypocritical judgment. He says in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge, uh, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God... Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Prevenient grace. So you're like, wait a second. What? So the the, the prevenient grace is supposed to come from um, God's kindness, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But obviously, in the context of the passage, the con- in the context of the passage of presuming of the riches of his kindness is saying that I am going to keep doing things that other people are going to be judged for and act like I'm not going to be judged for them. That's the idea. Okay? That's, he even uses the word forbearance. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Are you taking advantage of the grace of God? Are you presuming on the grace of God as you continue in sin? His kindness and His patience, instead of instantly judging you and sending you to hell, for example, He has he is patient and He is waiting. We see that in 2 Peter 3, don't we? That He is patient, not wanting any one of His sheep uh, to perish. But the idea here that there is some kind of, that the kindness is some kind of kindness that got infused into 
a bunch of people. It's just, it's just not here. The, God's kindness is his forbearance and not coming in judgment and allowing opportunity for people to repent and believe. And Paul is saying, don't presume on the grace of God. Don't presume on the grace of God. Don't presume on his kindness. His kindness is supposed to lead you. It's meant to lead you to repentance. Any questions about that one? Besides why it's supposed to support the doctrine it's supposed to support, in my, in my, in my judgment at least. All right, well, let's look at the very last one in Titus chapter 2. And again, I want you to see, I don't know, a lot, of, a lot of this is new for a lot of people. I want you to see this in the text, which is why we're looking at it. It would be easier to sit up here and like have objections, but I want you to see how this doctrine comes out of the Bible and then how it goes right back into it, so to speak. Now, actually, that's not even the right way to say it. How it comes out of something that I would suggest is, is a real reach, and we're going to see why, which is not the end of the story here. Um, Titus 2, let's read 11 through 15. Titus 2, 11 through 15, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Okay, that's the, we're going to pause right there for a second. That's the prevenient grace part. That's the proof text for pre prevenient grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All right? But now, let's just keep reading to see if we get our hands around what he's saying to Titus there in Crete. Training us. Oh wait, hold on. So now we know that the grace of God and salvation is, involves something about training. Let's just continue. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the, uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. There is the idea, does anyone disagree that God has appeared bringing salvation for all people? Christ has died, Christ has risen, there is a call to repent and believe the gospel, and there is a call to live holy lives, there is a call to abandon lawlessness, and there is a call to adopt a hope waiting for the end of the story, which is the culmination of salvation, right? Salvation, not to be confused with justification, kind of this initial punctiliar moment, but the whole thing from dead in sin to resurrection, salvation, this whole, uh, this whole thing. He's saying, yeah, that's why Christ has appeared. It's, that, that's, we agree. That's what, it, I mean, that's what it seems to be suggesting. Because of Christ has brought salvation for all people, it's, it trains us to renounce ungodliness. It trains us to do these things, to wait for these things, and that's how we should, we should live in light of the hope of the gospel. That's what this text communicates. There's nothing in here about... Again, the text is honestly a much better text for like universalism, that everyone gets saved. If you're going to read off something... If you're just going to read, the read off the surface of the text a poor reading, a better poor reading would be the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people means that all people are saved. Again, I'm not suggesting that that's what it means. But it's just very difficult to understand how this means the very specific claim of prevenient grace. That everyone, that, that what it means that, sal that, that Christ has brought salvation for all people in his appearance is that everyone has their heart partially transformed and partially regenerated so they don't suffer from total inability. When you hear that claim and then you just look back at this text, like you just, 
it's just very difficult to understand how it comes out of that. It seems like an incredible reach, okay? So let me just say, I have to confess that I think that the biblical case for prevenient grace from the text is an enormous stretch. However, however, you might think there, there are very smart people who hold this, and there are very smart people who love Jesus. How on earth have, have people who have been to seminary and know Greek and all the rest, how could they be motivated to find the doctrine in those four passages that seemed like just such a stretch? And, and some of, and at least the last two, in some cases, feel like they're not trying. Here's why, right here. Here's why. Prevenient grace at the end of the day, when you read the books and talk to the folks, is motivated by getting out of a particular objection. It is something that is developed to get out of a particular objection. I know it's long. I know it's an eyesore. Let's just read it together. If all people actually experience total inability to repent, apart from an effectual calling, that God does not extend to everyone, then God couldn't genuinely call all people to repent, which he does. And hold those who did not do so responsible for their choice, given that they were unable to do so, owing to God's own selectivity in extending the effectual call. But all Christians agree that God does call people everywhere to repent and holds people responsible for not doing so. And thus, despite being disposed towards sin, we can know that people do not actually experience total inability. Instead, they have been touched by prevenient grace. The idea is if God calls everyone to repent and a necessary condition for repentance and belief is this a regeneration and effectual call, but that not everyone has it, that God can't actually call people to repent. But think of it this way. Here's an illustration. Imagine I call them my kids to come downstairs while they're tied up. I don't know why they're tied up. Don't ask me questions about it, all right? They're tied up. Um, and I go up there and I untie one of them, but not the other. And then I send the one who didn't come downstairs to their room for disobedience. That's what this is supposed to picture. That's kind of the, that's the, supposed to be the intuitive force of the objection. Like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. How could that be? Oh, see, and Provenient Grace says, see, not everyone can really be tied up. Okay. Brian Shelton even says this, It is an issue of the justice of God that the sons of Adam are expected to repent if they cannot repent. Accountability without opportunity should be posited as unjust. Now, whoa, whoa. Now, I know a lot of people weren't here for the very first Sunday school we did on the metaphysics and philosophy of free will and alternate possibilities, the ability to do otherwise, moral culpability. But there's a reason I started with that lecture. Because this right here is the, is the crux of the matter. And it is a philosophical commitment. Let me read it one more time from Brian Shelton, who, by the way, published a book on prevenient grace. He's an expert on prevenient grace. It is an issue of the justice of God. The sons of Adam are expected to repent if they cannot repent, which is another way of saying, if you do not have the ability to do otherwise, you cannot be held morally responsible. Accountability without opportunity should be positive and unjust. Again, the lack of the ability to do otherwise means that you are not morally responsible. But we did this whole Sunday school 
to show that that is far from obvious. Far from obvious. Let me retell the illustration. Suppose I call my kids from upstairs out of their rooms and one comes down and the other one screams at me and they say that they're staying in their room because they like disobeying and they hate me. And when I go upstairs to exact justice, does the child who didn't come down get a pass because unbeknownst to her, I had jammed the door to see if she would bang on it to get my attention and therefore she couldn't have come down. Who thinks I go up there and now she's not morally responsible because she couldn't come down? You might think, wait, she didn't, that didn't even factor into it. Who cares? She still couldn't have come down. She still couldn't have come down. And yet, obviously, she would not get out of, or I say she, I'm like revealing which one of my kids would be. <laughs> he, she, they, all of the pronouns, uh, the, the two legitimate ones, um, they, would not, they would not get out, they would not get a pass there. Okay? It is a, uh, well, I was drunk, I couldn't do otherwise. Do you get a pass because you couldn't do otherwise because you were drunk? I believe you. I couldn't stand up straight. I, I just couldn't help but to say this. Okay. It is a philosophical commitment to suggest that the ability to do otherwise is necessary for moral responsibility. And it's not a philosophical commitment that is uh, even, a, it's not a Christian. I mean, the non-Christians debate all these things, which is why we did that first lecture. For some of you who weren't there for the first Sunday school class, Someone, this is going to be like, oh my goodness, what on earth is that? I don't have time to go through that. Go back and watch the first one. I tried to go through these views, okay? Where is the Bible verse that supports this particular doctrine? This particular philosophical commitment? Perhaps we should listen to Scripture before we seek to kind of massage away some of these tensions. And then we tell a philosophical backstory that's compatible with Scripture instead of basing our interpretation of Scripture based on a philosophical commitment like this that Brian Shelton has. Scripture frequently paints God as doing things that it would be incoherent or wrong for us to do. I cannot con command that you go route the Canaanites. The Spirit of God is the one who leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. If I led you into a bar, if you're an alcoholic, to be tempted or tested, do you think that would be a loving, kind thing for me to do? Of course it wouldn't. Why on earth is the Spirit of God leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tested and potentially fall to Satan in Matthew chapter 4? Um, over and over again, God commands things that we could never command each other. Um, and so because of the creator-creature chasm, uh, creator-creature chasm, excuse me, our moral concepts so often are just not going to go across the chasm. The, the, the example that I've given until people are tired of hearing it, I get it, but, but usually when people are tired of, tired of hearing it, they start remembering it's the idea, if I worked in a store and I told you that, I, I, you know, my friends come in, I give, them, I give them stuff for free out of the merchandise in the back. You're like, well, you can't do that. That's stealing. Okay, too bad. I don't care. But what if I told you that, you give me that moral evaluation. I say, well, actually, I'm the owner of the store. Well, now is it wrong? No. If I'm the owner of the store. I can give away whatever I want. It's all my stuff. An employee, you're saying that's a double standard. Yeah, it is a double standard. One person has a different prerogative than the other person. They're not on the same plane. 
every kind of effort to try to compare what God could do and remain good with like, oh, here's what a, a human father but, 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 is, is, is going to be off the rails. It's not going to apply. He's God and we're not. Um, second of all, in response to this objection here, God calls all people to repent, including those who are born, live, and die without ever hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and in fact, um, only hearing and believing false gospels their whole life in many parts of the world. Now, let me just ask. I understand it's a, it's a challenge here. This hits us all in the feels. I get it. But what kind of robust ability do such folks have to repent that renders them responsible? Because that's what provenient grace is supposed to get them, them out of here. Provenient grace is supposed to say, this makes it possible for people to repent and believe the gospel. But if they've never heard the gospel, how can they repent and believe in it? Is that not why Paul says in Romans 10... Uh, that that, uh, that people have to hear that faith comes by hearing and word, hearing by the word of Christ. How can they believe if they had not heard? That's the whole that justifies the whole enterprise, even of the Great Commission, taking the gospel to where it hasn't been heard. But even on the Arminians' view, there are a lot of people who die having never heard the gospel, and in fact believe not just they're not just a neutral agnostic; they're believing a false gospel. And you might say, well. Practically speaking, because that's what they're wanting to say. It's not just some logical possibility. What, if provenient grace is supposed to enable people um, to repent and believe the gospel, how, to Michael's point over here, if they never get a call, meaning they never hear the gospel preached, the external call, how, how are they going to, what, what's the robust ability that they have that renders them responsible, like provenient grace is supposed to tell us? Third, if we're going to be philosophical, infallible foreknowledge is incompatible with human freedom. Infallible foreknowledge. If God writes on a rock that you are going to do this tomorrow, philosophers have asked, do you have the ability to not do it? Do you have the ability to not do it? And we definitely do not have time to go into this one. But the answer uh, for many, and certainly myself, is no. Is no. But God infallibly knows that there will be people who do not repent and believe the gospel before they die and therefore will go to hell. So you might ask, do they have the robust ability to, to put it like Peter Vanningwagen does, to make God wrong? The answer from our Christian friends who are open theists, which is sad, but nevertheless, uh, is, um, is no. That's why Dean Zimmerman at Rutgers, William Hasker, the Metaphysics of the Triune God, Peter Vanningwagen, Notre Dame, the premier, not the some of the premier Christian philosophers in the world are open theists because they know that if God has, in, they, they think if God, and I, I, I tend to agree with them. If, 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 um, if God has infallible foreknowledge, then you don't have the ability to do otherwise because you would therefore have the ability to make God wrong. But if that's the case, then provenient grace doesn't play a helpful role in this story either. There are other things that make it the case, even on an Arminian's, understanding that uh, that's that, that, that call into question what provenient grace is supposed to do here. I will give it to Shelton. Actually, you know what? I can't give it to Shelton yet because we're at 946. Let me just say, let me just read this one thing. Let me just say, Shelton does say this to his point. And this is really, I really respect him for saying this. He says, for the Arminian, any theory of justice, which is the philosophical account, God, uh, the justice of God, 
is subordinated to a scripture that speaks of universal opportunity to repent more persuasively than our own theories of justice. Which is exactly right. It's exactly what he should say in terms of his philosophy of understanding how to do theology. Scripture is why the book was authored, and in the end, Scripture should be our great convincing. That sounds great, but when he is pressed on why he understands a John 1.9 this way, he defaults to thee because God couldn't hold people responsible who fill in the blank. It's kind of like the Roman Catholic Church says, of course Scripture is supreme, as interpreted by the church. The Catholic Church. It's like, well, you like give me a thing with one hand and kind of take it back real quick, you know? He says, Shelton says the same thing. Yes, our philosophical underpinnings uh, should be subordinated to Scripture. They shouldn't be the things interpreting the Scripture. But when he is asked about why he, what, what, how he gets this, when you listen to him talk, even in his own words, he keeps going back to, yeah, but if it means this, then it means that God couldn't hold people accountable or that people wouldn't be responsible or that God would be this and that. And that follows from his theory of justice that he says is supposed to be subordinated to Scripture when you, when, you, when you are in these conversations practically, and even when you listen to Dr. Shelton, it ends up being uh, uh, the other way around. That for them is just simply a more fundamental intuition, and that guides them in their exegesis. Thank you so much for the extra two or three minutes. I, I, I will close up with uh, two further objections that will not take nearly as much time. Next time we will move on um, to the next uh, doctrine in our Doctrines of Grace series, which is unconditional election. All right, let's pray. God, we're thankful, for, again, to have the opportunity to consider these things. We pray that we do so in grace and love uh, and wisdom. We'd seek to be understanding. Uh, we would seek humility to, to uh, understand when we are mistaken, when we are misguided, that we would be people of the Scripture who, to the best that we can, knowing that we all have biases and we all have intuitions and we all have a past and we all have a framework, but that we would, to the best we can, submit our intuitions and ourselves to the Scripture and want to hear your voice in them. Be with us in our next hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.